Take your copy of God's Word, if you would, this morning. Open it up to Matthew chapter 21, please. Matthew chapter 21, and beginning in verse 28 this morning. We continue the series we've been in the past few weeks on the parables. While you're turning there, let me just say what an honor and a joy and a blessing it is to get to welcome you to Glendale. Several of you here today as guests, we're so thankful that you come. We are a work in progress, and the Lord continues to work our progress. And if he leads you here, we could use your help in that progress. We want to honor our ladies before us today. Some who are here as mothers biologically, some who are here as spiritual mothers who have influenced a generation of children all around them. We know this is a day of celebration and it's also a day of difficulty. Some who remember traumatic experiences in the past, some who have struggled with infertility and miscarriages and other things, some who have a a loved one, a mother that's gone on, some who may not have a great experience of their mother I read a poem a number of years ago that I think speaks into the gospel in this, and I want to give this to us today as we get into our message. It's called This Mother's Day. Here's what it says. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, experienced miscarriages or failed adoptions, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, We appreciate you. (laughs) Yes, we do. To those who walk the path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge that experience. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We celebrate you today. It's a poem written by Amy Young. And so for all of our ladies who are present today, whether you're a mom or a spiritual mom, however God is using you in this walk of life, guys, would we just give a word of appreciation and a hand to the ladies who are among us today. We are so thankful for you. At the close of the service, we have some cookies available for all of our ladies who are here. We've also got a photo backdrop that you're welcome to use. This is the day when you can force them to take a picture, ladies. Use it to your advantage. Get the best meal that you possibly can and the gift card and everything else. Because I'm telling you, without our women, the church could not possibly survive. Jesus knew that himself. And in Matthew 21, we see the results of trying to survive apart from God's family, apart from his grace. Beginning in verse 28, look with me if you would. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of my father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. If you want a definition of the will of God, I believe it is this. The will of God is that we would believe on him enough to act on his word in every area of life. The will of God is that we would believe on him enough to act on his word in every area of our life. Faith is always followed by obedience. The two go together. And previously in this passage, Jesus has mentioned the importance of being connected to the vine. He has said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In me, you will bear much fruit. We know that apart from the working of God and the spirit of God, our labor is in vain. We can harvest, we can plant, and we can water, but God is the one who gives the increase. And in this particular scene, we see a scenario where this first son defies the authority of his father. Not hard to understand why. Ours is an age of anti-authority. We don't like to be told what to do. Don't tell me when to eat. Don't tell me when to come to work. Don't tell me when to go to bed. Don't tell me how high or how low, what to spend, what not to spend. Don't tell me how to vote. Don't tell me how to improve my life. Don't tell me how to destroy my life. Just don't tell me what to do. This second son may not be, this first son may not be all that hard to understand. Have you ever been around a person whose answer is always no? Doesn't even matter what the question is. No is the answer. Don't you love being around those kind of people? Doesn't it just bring your heart joy? (laughs) Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe we're all that kind of person on any given day. But usually, people don't react that way in a vacuum. We don't know why he said no. Sometimes we don't know why people around us said no. Maybe there was a reason for it. Maybe he had an issue with his father where he thought, my dad's always against me, and why should I respond positively when he's so negative toward me? You know there's people who believe that about God right now. They don't say yes because they always believe that God is out to get them that he's out to punish them, that he's out to take away their freedom and take away their rights, take away their calendar. When the truth is, the Heavenly Father wants what's best for you, even if it's not always what you like. The great lie of Satan and everything else that is evil throughout history has been that somehow your plan is better than God's plan for you when the opposite is actually true. The only way you can possibly miss out on anything in this life is if you don't follow the will of God for your life. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have much joy. The world will tell you, follow it. Jesus says, follow me. These people, when they receive the call of God, They somehow believe that what God is doing, that doing God's will, rather, will somehow be second rate. Can I just say something to you? God doesn't do second rate, and he doesn't have any second-class citizens. They are all citizens of the heavenly king. And when you submit to the will of God, you do not submit to the easy way, but I guarantee you, you submit to the best way for you and everyone around you. 
Adrian Rogers told the story of the man who was working his two boys out in the field. There were a lot of farmers in that day, and he was working them out in the cornfield, shucking corn, doing whatever he could to, to get the corn harvest ready, even long beyond all the other boys who had gone on to play and do other things. One of the concerned fathers looked at this dad, and he said, why in the world do you keep the boys out in the field? They can be doing other things. You've got more than enough corn. He said, I'm not raising corn. I'm raising men. That maybe what God is doing in your life, even though you don't like it, is going to make you more like Jesus than you ever thought you could possibly be otherwise. It's in the trial of life that when you don't say no, when God says go, but you say yes, and you receive his best, the very thing that you resist may in fact become God's greatest working in you. Maybe he's the kid that you thought would never measure up. This kid's always saying no, doesn't have his act together. Tell him to do his chores, he doesn't do them. Tell him to do his homework, he doesn't get it done. Tell him to do the right thing, he inevitably does the wrong, the wrong thing. But somewhere along the line, the kid that you predicted would turn out to be nothing turns it around and he goes and begins to do the very thing that you had asked him to do all that time ago he turns it around and the father responds he did my work and he blesses him for it there's a second scene that we're presented with the second son he thinks he knows what his father wants to hear and so when the father says to the second son go and work the field he says yes I will go and then he's nowhere to be found he knows how to play the game he just doesn't know how to score the ball he promises the world, and then he gets distracted by the world, where the Scripture tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. This guy is a people person. He's probably popular. He, he knows how to feel out what people want, but mere words do not get him the approval of his father. He says yes, but his yes is a no. And what is God saying to us? through these two scenes. I believe there's a number of things. I believe, number one, if you look throughout Scripture, over and over, the Scripture tells us, don't make a vow you don't intend to keep. Man, we live in a world where talk is cheap. It doesn't mean anything these days. And yet, for the Scripture, it is incredibly important because promises made, instead of being promises kept, become promises broken, when in the kingdom of God, the promises of God are everything that we have. In fact, your whole Christian life is simply taking God at his word over and over and over again, believing that his promises are true. Sometimes I think if I can just do that in a day, it'll solve all my problems. But you got to do that day by day. You got to do that with your daily bread. You got to do that moment by moment to say, God, I believe that what you've said in your word is true, that what you've done in their lives, you can do in my life, and you can do in all the lives in the future. So don't make a vow you don't intend to keep. It's better to undersell and over deliver than to oversell and under deliver. And isn't that true in the kingdom of God? In fact, this is what Proverbs says. It's better not to make a vow at all than to fail to keep the one that's made. It's especially true when it comes to the things of God. David says, I won't offer anything that costs me nothing. Herein 
lies the problem of much of so-called Christianity. It's that we don't realize that following God is not simply a prayer that we pray, but a life that we live. Every moment of every day that I give myself to God, that I commit my life to Christ. Don't say it unless you mean it. And ask God to help you walk it. Number two, hear this out loud. Good intentions are never enough. Now this second son, he's got good intentions. He knows how to have good intentions. He, he knows what it is to do the right thing. He says, I have these good intentions, but good intentions won't get you into the kingdom of God. Road to hell is paved with good intentions. In fact, Jesus himself will ask, why do you call me Lord when you don't do the things I say? Blessed is he who hears my word and does it. This is how you know that you love Jesus, when you keep his commandments. And really, we have to ask ourselves, what good are good intentions if they're not acted upon? Here is this father, incredibly impatient, patient to a point, but at some point, he says, you have to believe. It's not just mere words. You have to act on your faith. So that's why this first son, even though he initially rebelled, is commended while the second son is condemned. The one who says no and then goes has a better life expectancy than the one who says yes and then deserts the scene. You know, a lot of people say they want God, but when it comes down to it, they're like the king where Paul testified before and he says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. They're almost there. Most people, C.S. Lewis said, don't miss heaven by a mile. They miss it by an inch. It's right under their noses. Here is the kingdom of God. And yet good intentions won't get you there. Almost is not enough. Since the 1940s, a group called the Ad Council has been the leading producer of public service announcements. One of the more recent ones called Don't Almost Give campaign has been particularly powerful. It starts off like this. There's a man with crutches struggling to go up a flight of concrete stairs, and the narrator starts to say, this is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And then you hear a pause, and the announcer says, Almost gave. How good is almost giving? <laughs> About as good as almost walking. They play another ad. It's with a homeless man curled up in a ball on a pile of rags. One ratty bed sheet shields him from the cold. And the narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him to a shelter. Someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And after a pause, the narrator continues, and Jack Thomas, he almost made it through the night. 
There's another ad that shows an older woman sitting alone in a room, staring out a window. The narrator says, this is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. Still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. But almost giving is the same as not giving at all. And it ends with a simple, direct message. Don't almost give. Give. The kingdom of God requires action. You have to step out in faith. And put your words and put your money where your mouth is. He tells us don't make a vow we can't keep. Good intentions aren't enough. But don't miss this. This is the best part of the story. He says expect the unexpected on God's roll call. Now isn't this ironic? Look specifically what he says. Jesus says this. He asks who actually did the will of his father. They say the first son that said no and then came around to it. Yes. Not the son who said yes and then by his action said no. Jesus says who is the one that did the will of the father? They say the first and then he responds to them. Truly I say to you the tax collectors and the prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. This is what keeps happening. Jesus keeps messing up the script. He doesn't put in the self-righteous people. He puts in the people who were made righteous by his name. The one that you thought had it all together. The one that you thought was going to make something of himself. Throws it all away because it's all hype. And then the one that you thought would never amount to anything ends up being the very person with whom God is pleased and the kingdom of God is filled with both types of people. Church, you better be careful about pronouncing judgment on someone when you don't know where they'll end up. God has a funny way of turning evil into good of turning brokenness into glory. And isn't it a tragic irony of the gospel is that the tax collectors, the prostitutes, understand the kingdom better than the religious establishment does. And isn't it something that Jesus constantly uses tax collectors and prostitutes for his imagery? Tax collectors who were taking up to four times the required amount from the Jews. They were looked down upon. Zacchaeus was one of those. Matthew was one of those. Prostitutes, the lowest of the low. Someone asked, why are prostitutes always mentioned? They asked this in Eastern Europe where many people did not have other options other than this. They felt because of the economic depravity and the governmental situation. And one woman stood up and spoke in her broken image in English. She said this, listen to it. Everyone has someone to look down on, but not the prostitutes. We are at the low. Our families, they feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places, we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. They use names like whore, slut, hooker, harlot. We feel it too. We're at the bottom. And sometimes when you are at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. And what we don't understand 
as Tim Keller ably argues, is that when we see prostitutes and alcoholics and prisoners and drug addicts and unwed mothers and the homeless and the refugees, he knows that we are actually looking in a mirror of ourselves. Because if the Christian spends all his life as a respectable middle-class person, no matter, he has to know spiritually, I was just like these people. Even though physically and socially I wasn't where they are now, they are outcasts. And so was I. We were all outside of the camp. And God in his grace, when we say yes to him, brings us back in. He says to the Pharisees, even when you saw it, the evidence wasn't enough for them. He will say, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear my words, though they rise from the dead. Because the ultimate problem isn't a problem of work ethic. The ultimate problem isn't a problem of upbringing. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. And so Jesus can say to that woman, dropping that alabaster box of ointment, wiping his feet with her tears and her hair, she knows more about the grace of God than all of you. He could say to that woman, with two pennies, that widow's might, she's put more in the offering plate than the billionaire's. Because she has given her all, and she can say to that tax collector and that Pharisee who show up at the same place to pray, and the Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not like that. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the tax collector ends up in the kingdom of God. The whole emphasis here is that you did not believe him. And brother and sister, all you have to do is believe He that believed on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And yet there are those words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Your natural instinct in your flesh will always be to say no to and run from God. That's what will happen. That's what happened to Jonah. God got his attention. Put him underwater for three days. He'll get yours too. But if you can ever learn to run to God rather than from God, then like the father with the prodigal, God doesn't meet you halfway. He meets you when you take the first step. And he embraces those who are his own. Don't say no when God says go. Say yes to the kingdom of God. And all of life's joys will be yours. Would you bow your heads with me just a moment, just briefly? Thank you for your attention today. I know we've got a lot of things going on. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. It would be a travesty if we were to end this service without someone having an opportunity to declare publicly their faith in Jesus. I don't know what your situation is today. Maybe you're that first son. Maybe you're the guy or the girl who comes up and when you're asked to do something for the Lord, you're asked to follow Jesus, you say no. But then God gets a hold of your life. He convicts you. He brings through His Holy Spirit that that repentance that leads to faith. And maybe right now you wouldn't be willing to admit it to anyone 
other than Jesus, but in your heart of hearts, you're dying to say yes to Him. Oh, friend, the kingdom of God welcomes people like you. It's the only type of people who've ever done anything. Those who are empty of themselves, filled with the Spirit. Friend, maybe you're here today and your answer has been yes all your life because you know how to check off the boxes. You know how to put something in the offering plate. You know how to show up. You know how to serve. You know how to play the church game. And if you're honest with yourself, you're pretty good at it. But is your all on the altar? Have you given every bit of yourself to Jesus to the point at which it's not just words for you, it's actions. It's living a life of faith prompted by obedience. Brother and sister, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I got good news for you. He knows everything about you. And He desires for you to know Him in an intimate and personal way. There's a sense in which you don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you better than any book ever could. And if you will give your life and surrender to His will in repentance and faith, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. I've met a lot of people, a lot of people, who regretted not doing the will of God. I've yet to meet a soul who regretted following Him with everything they had. Father, this is your invitation. This is your time. You can move in this time. You can move any time you want. But I pray in this moment, as we're getting ready to be dismissed, that the Spirit of God would touch someone in some way, not by words that I have spoken, but by the holy word that you have written. I pray that the same Spirit who worked back then, all those years ago, and is just as alive and just as powerful today as He will ever be, will work in this church so that anything that is done, we will not be able to help but say, it was all by Jesus, not of ourselves. Not unto us, O oh Lord, but unto your name be praised. Have your way, as you always do. In the name of Jesus, we pray and for his sake. Amen.